I want to ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and stand with me as we read these verses. And, and what I'm going to do is, is just read the first two verses of this chapter, and then we will consider really 18 verses here uh, in, in the message this morning and see some of the language that I was speaking about a moment ago. Uh, this series has been called The Difference because 1 Corinthians illustrates to us how as the body of Christ, there should be a difference in us. And he deals with that difference when it comes even to some of his own responsibilities. Paul says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Fathers, we come to your word this morning. I pray that your spirit would illuminate your truth that we might not only understand it, but that we might be so moved and equipped to live it that we make a difference in our world. That they would see the difference in us, but that we would be difference makers in our world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can be seated. Life calling. Life work. What are some things that we can expect? What are some things Paul expected? You know, I remember... The first competition that I won, uh, and I was not a part, I don't think we had a middle school FFA program, but I remember the first competition I won as a uh, freshman in high school as a green hand in FFA, and that was the FFA Creed Contest. And, and students used to get tickled even through my student ministry days, and where I served in North Carolina where not only was there not an FFA, they didn't, they didn't even know what FFA was. And so I would begin to say, well, I believe in the future of agriculture. Back then we said farming. They changed the word to agriculture. I believe in the future of agriculture with a faith born not of words but of deeds, achievements won by present and past generations of agriculturalists through the promise of better ways, through our better days, through better ways, even as the better things we now enjoy have come to us through the struggles of former years. And I would begin to quote the creed. Some of you are like, man, I can't believe you still know that much of it. Um, but but I, would, I would begin to quote, and I would say there was a certain work ethic that I learned being a part of that. And some of you are like, well, you didn't grow up, you didn't live on a farm. And the truth of the matter is, uh, I, I sold a lot of beef in my time when I was a teenager. Uh, Donnie Drake over here sold a lot of beef as well, because we worked at Burger King. And uh, <laughs> We were, and so people, as uh, Curtis reminded me earlier, a lot of people don't realize where that meat comes from in, in today's world, but it's all ag-related. And so I, I learned a, a certain work ethic uh, that you could have a passion and uh, learned phrases like uh, less dependence on begging, more power in bargaining. You know, after the fall, when we read in Scripture that Adam and Eve sinned and, and they fell, after the fall, all work had something in common. It was all drudgery, the hardness by the sweat of the brow, thorns, that became part of work. Uh, and not only that, it was all ag-related at that time. All work was ag-related in the beginning. The gospel, we need to understand, redeems all work. It redeems work, makes it personal to us, it restores a level of passion. Is it still hard work? Yes. Is it still by the sweat of our brow that's out of heaven? Absolutely. But it is still redeemed for glorious purposes. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 24, uh, we're reminded that um, whatever we do, we're to do it with all our hearts or heartily or passionately, some translations say, as unto the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward. He says, 
whatever you do in the, in the King James, it says work hard at it. Or, I'm sorry, the NIV, it says work hard at it. Whatever you do. And then Proverbs 14 and verse 23 reminds us that hard work brings profit. Paul's ministry was hard work. But all of us have a call, a life calling, something we can get excited about, something we can get passionate about it, but just because we love what we do, just because we can get excited and get passionate about it, doesn't mean it's not going to be hard work and that there are certain things that are going to be involved. At Corinth, they were concerned about the whole concept of ministry as a vocation. Ministry as a vocation. Probably couldn't tell you how many times that Pastor Ben or I, Jeff, you're going to join this club, but um, how many times we've been asked, what is your real job? What what is your real job? And and so they were having a hard time grasping this, that that Paul would give himself 24-7 to ministry and, and, and receive compensation for that. First Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Paul began to tell Timothy, hey, it's okay, you're young, I'm entering you in this thing, it's okay for you to receive uh, a, an income for what you're doing in ministry. He, he would even tell Timothy, he says, uh, uh, those who, who are lead according to the Word of God, those who are bringing the Word of God to people, uh, he says it's worthy of double honor, and, and really in the, in the Greek that was their way of saying it's worthy of a, a good paycheck. Um, Third John chapter 1 and verse 6 says that we are to send evangelists and missionaries on their way in a manner that honors God. I know that one of my desires here at Trinity is when an itinerant minister, an evangelist or a missionary is with us. We want to be such a blessing to them that we free them up to go other places that may not be able to be such a blessing to them. So the church here at Trinity, I'll tell you, is full of wonderful folks They love their pastor, love their ministry staff. Um, They free us up with financial support so that we're not at this point. I realize different churches of different size have to approach this different ways, and Paul did the same thing at different seasons of his ministry. But they free us up to do a work that we're called to do, but I'll tell you, it's a work that we love to do, hard work, but a work that we love to do. And so this morning, I'm not preaching to you on uh, some kind of financial support for the pastors or staff. or I'm not, I'm not going to sell anointed prayer cloths at the end of the service. I'm not going to ask you to, to uh, sow a seed of faith into my pockets and, and you be blessed a hundredfold as a result. I realize preachers say that from time to time. That's not what Paul was trying to communicate here. And so I'm not asking you to feed uh, hungry kids whose last names are Brown and Smith this morning. I'm sharing this because I believe that we all have a calling. We all have a calling. We all have a work to do. We all have a home to influence, a community influence, a vocation to embrace. And I believe because of the gospel, we can do so with redeeming value, not with drudgery. I don't think that God designed us and saved us and called us so that we get up hating what we do every day. I believe he saved us and redeemed us that we might love what we do because we understand there are some guiding principles along the way that we can make a difference with what we're doing. Now, the question comes to how do you see that? How do you tackle your life work and your life calling? And and so let me give you some uh, advice from the Apostle Paul right here in this text to take with you this morning that might change your approach, that might change your perspective. Number one is this, we can serve with freedom in our work. We can serve with freedom. I believe God intended, and with the gospel that redeemed 
work in this world, while it is still hard work, it is still by the sweat of the brow, anybody who tries to present to you a get-rich-quick scheme, don't buy it. It's still hard work, no matter how wealthy or how just getting by you might become, it's still going to be hard work. And so we can serve with a certain freedom, and Paul says in verse 1, he's explaining here some liberty that he has. Remember the chapter breaks in the original autographs here were not there. It wasn't numbered chapter 8 and then chapter 9. It just kind of flowed together as a letter to Corinth. And in chapter 8, he is talking about Christian liberty. We talked about that, even the whole meat sacrifice to idols thing. And there are certain freedoms that we have. And one freedom he was experiencing, he says, am I not free? Am I not apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? He says, I have life experience. I have a calling. I met Jesus on the road to Damascus face to face. And he gave me a new vocation a new mission, a new task, and I am embracing that. He says, are you not my work in the Lord? As a matter of fact, the reason this church existed was because it was part of the vision that God had given the Apostle Paul. And he says, because I am free to do what God calls me to do, you are now the fruit of my labor. And so he says, I never want to use this freedom. In chapter 8, he talked about not using it as any kind of freedom as a stumbling block. So there were times in his life where Paul was a bivocational minister, where he, he kind of worked another job, or he made tents or did something else while he was also preaching. There were times where he relied completely on other churches than, other the, than the churches where he was particularly serving, other churches that supported his income over the years. He had freedom to pursue his call. He had freedom to work hard and to earn a living as a result. And I believe that every one of you has a call of God on your life of some kind that even affects your vocation, affects where you work. Even though it's going to be hard work, even though it might be tough to wake up sometimes in the mornings and get after it, and for those of you who are still in school, that is your hard work to start with, is getting an education. You have to wake up in the morning and get after it. It's hard work, but it is redeeming. It is something you can find joy in, find passion to do. And, and Paul had that freedom. It's okay to discover your calling. It's okay to have a passion to believe God's calling you to do something. And to, it's okay to earn a living doing what you love to do and get excited about waking up to do every day. And it's still work. As a matter of fact, I can tell you there are people who were in uh, Bible college and seminary with me who were convinced they wanted to go into student ministry because they had seen only one side. And some of you, if you're not careful, you'll look at folks like Pastor Ben, who's ministered to families here. And if you're not careful, you'll say, man, he gets to go to all these wonderful trips, all these you know, uh, camps and, and, and missions opportunities. I bet it's just like free vacations on the church's dime. <laughs> Volunteer to go with them. It's hard work. It's hard work. That's why when he gets back from a trip like that, I'm like, you need to go home and spend some time with your family and catch up a little bit. It's, it's hard, all ministry. So I know some folks who kind of embraced that, and they lasted in student ministry uh, about 18 months to two years. You have the biggest dropout rate in student ministry. Why? Ministry is hard work. And, and so Paul is saying it's still work, but it's redeeming. It's what I'm called to. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 4 through 6, uh, ministry is compared to, to the, the life of a soldier, and then the life of an athlete, and then the life of a farmer. He uses three illustrations, and he says, here are other things that people want to be successful. And he describes the athlete. He says, you know, if an, if an athlete is going to be successful, he's going to have to work hard at it. He's going to be disciplined. He's going to agonize. If someone's going to be successful 
and farming. There's going to be hard work. And so he compares ministry to those three areas, uh, being a soldier, being an athlete, being a farmer. We have God-given freedom to, to pursue God. Even here in the United States, especially here in the United States, we have a God-given freedom to pursue his calling and his passion on our lives, whatever it may be. Paul was communicating here, I'm not one of those lazy preachers that's just kind of fleecing the flock. He, he wasn't like that pastor who was sitting there when he should have been ministering to his congregation or should have been studying or whatever. He's sitting there in the recliner beside his wife and, and they were watching TV. And it sounded like it began to rain outside, so he looked at his wife. He said, hey, go over there and open the door and see if it's raining. And she was like, you get up and go over there and open the door and see if it's raining. He said, ah, just, just call the dog in and let's see if he's wet. <laughs> you know, sometimes we, we get so lazy. We, 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 get, we have life where we've got a remote. We've got everything else that does everything for us. Paul says, I'm not one of those guys. He, he says, I'm, I'm not that preacher who names his bed the Word so that if anybody calls the wife or the secretary, she can say, he is in the Word this morning. I don't want to interrupt him. He's not one of those who names his boat vacation so that when the wife or the secretary gets called, says, I need to speak with the pastor, and he says, they say, well, he's on vacation this morning, and, and so I can't get the pastor. Paul was a hardworking minister. Now, Robert Lewis shows us from Scripture, and those men who have done our men's fraternity Bible study with me might recall this. Robert Lewis shares from Scripture that work kind of moves from certain levels toward others as you, as you get older, as you get more experience, maybe more education. But as you begin to discover God's call on your life, you'll begin to move through some of these stages because we have freedom to do so. He says it begins, work begins, it's often paycheck-driven. And, and that's okay, by the way, to get a job because you need a paycheck. 1 Timothy 5, 8 says that the man who doesn't provide for his family is worse than a what? Infidel. And so it's okay to get a job. As a matter of fact, fellas, teenage guys, listen to me. Before Adam was given a woman to love, he was given a work to do. Maybe I should remind the ladies of that. Adam had a job before he had a wife. Before he was given a woman to love, he was given a work to do. And so to work to provide, paycheck-driven, is not a bad thing. It's just not where you want to stay. The next level that you can move to is passion-driven. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 24 says, A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own work, in their own toil. This too, he says, I see is from the hand of God to where you can say, this is not only a job that provides an income, but as you grow, once you start to earn a living, get some education, get some life experience, move into areas where you can get excited about going to work and love your work. Teddy Roosevelt said the greatest opportunity that we have as Americans is to work hard at work worth doing. We can work hard at work worth doing. And so you should be able to work hard at work worth doing. That's part of the redeeming value of work in the gospel. Then we move to a third level. It's philanthropy driven, where it's not just about you providing an income or earning a paycheck or even uh, the passion that you love to do what you're doing. Now, according to Ephesians 4.28, it says, let him who stole steal no longer, but work with his hands that he may give to him who has 
needs. Now, so often as we uh, 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 shout God and country and that we're glad and, and, and proud to be an Americans, we stop short of moving past a self-centered view of freedom. And, and God would say, listen, you want to you want to do work hard at work worth doing, but then you want to work so that you can be a blessing to others. It may be because of the income stream that the work provides that you're able to be a channel of blessing for others. Or it may be that the job itself intrinsically involves you being a blessing to others. So that the person who is a school teacher, the person who is a nurse, the person who has a job down at the bank or wherever it may be can say, listen, I don't just want to be excited about earning a paycheck, nor do I want to just be excited about loving my job. I actually pray that I, through this job, will be a blessing today to somebody else. Philanthropy-driven. I want to make the world a better place. And then, ultimately, the, the final level that he mentions is called purpose-driven, and you're not doing away with the others as you kind of walk through this. You're building on the others. Purpose-driven. Proverbs 3, nine says, Honor the Lord with your wealth. Matthew 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness where you say, listen, I'm striving to make a difference in my world for the glory of God. And I want in my work to bring honor with God. That's why it's so important. Organizations like FFA and so many other wonderful organizations to help young people develop at an early age to develop a, worth, a work ethic, not an entitlement mentality, but to say, I want to work hard at work worth doing, earn a paycheck, but have a passion to do what I'm called to do, to help others and to glorify God in my work. Now let's move to a second point here, another principle. We can support a family with our work. It's okay to do it. Most, most of you are saying, really? I thought that's what it was all about. Paul had to remind them of that. He says, my defense, look at verse 3. My defense to those who examine me in this, don't we have a right to eat and drink? What he's talking about is put food on the table there. Don't we have a right to put food on the table? Don't we have the right to be accompanied by a Christian wife like the other apostles? Now, Paul had hinted that he had a gift in this area where he didn't necessarily have to be married, but he says, don't I have a right to, to support a family? He says, you know, be accompanied by a Christian wife like the other apostles or the Lord's brothers, James and Jude, for instance, who brought us books in the Bible, Cephas, Peter, or is it only Barnabas and I who have a, no right to refrain from working? And by there, he talks, he's talking about taking another vocation. Can we not do what God called us to do and in doing so, provide for our families? And so those are some rhetorical questions, and the assumption is yes, absolutely. You have a right to do what you believe God's called you to do. If God opens the doors of opportunity, to do that and make a living doing it. I think it means some of us need to step out and take some risk from time to time. But the other apostles and James and Jude and Peter, they had been able to marry and continue on in ministry. Uh, Peter was married when he met the Lord and providing for a family. Remember, he had Jesus over. He used his house as a place for Jesus and his friends to hang out. So he was earning a good living as a fisherman. Some of you this morning, you would just absolutely love to say, man, I earn a good living as a fisherman, so all I ever have to do is fish. But he earned a good living as a fisherman and provided a home where they had church, where even his mother-in-law experienced the healing touch of Jesus Christ. And, and so some of you aren't praying for your mother-in-law like you should, but he provided that setting in his work. And so again, Paul says, I'm expressing a right to support our family. 
in this. Some of you have heard this story before of the, uh, the, the local town barber who decided he was uh, one day going to give a prominent member of the community a free haircut. And uh, he, he, sure enough, a police officer walked in that day and he said, Sir, you serve this community in such a wonderful way. He said, haircut's on the house today. The police officer says, thank you for, for doing that. I appreciate that big time. And the next day, when the barber showed up right there at the door, there laid a note with a dozen donuts from that police officer. He was so grateful. He gave him a dozen donuts. And so then the barber said, you know, you reap what you sow. What goes around comes around. I got this dozen donuts. I'm going to pick somebody today. And, and so the uh, school teacher came in after school that day. And, he, and, and so the barber said, sir, you serve our community so well, and I appreciate all that you do. The haircut's on the house today. It's on me. The school teacher said, thank you. I appreciate that so much. And the next day, when the barber showed up, there were a dozen shiny red apples right there on the doorstep to the, the barber shop. And then on the, the, the third day after this had happened, the barber says, yeah, I don't, I've got to do this one more time. And that day, the, the preacher came, and he said, Pastor, you have served this community and, and, and you go out of your way for so many today. The haircut's on the house. The preacher said, thank you for doing that. That means a lot to me. The next day, and I, I know this was a Baptist preacher because of the way the story ends. The next day, there were 12 pastors standing right there at the door. <laughs> you know, sometimes we're looking for a way to support our work. To, uh, and so many people bless pastors and those in ministry, but I'll tell you, no matter what you do, you do it with a passion, you do it with a sense of calling, you do what God's called you to do, God will take care of you, he will provide for your family. I know that probably my parents thought if I went into the ministry I would starve to death, but God has provided and put loving people around us. Now, he's already argued, you can live single if you want to live single, but God can use your work to help provide for a family. And for some of you who are like, man, it just, it's so much better. I don't really have the gift of singlehood, but I think I will stay single just because it might save me a little bit of money. Think about this. Those who are married at age 30 make $15,000 more per year than those who are single at age 30. And I don't think that there's a, some kind of prejudice there towards single or, or against single people. I think that it's just that those who are married feel like we've got to work harder at what we do. On average, they put in 400 more hours a year, but they make about $15,000 a year more. By age 50, those who are married make about $20,000 more a year on average than those who are single at age 50. And so you can work hard and support a family where you work. Now, when we get to this third principle here, I want you to see that we can strive for fairness in our work. We should all strive for fairness in our work. I think that's even some language in the, the, the closing ceremonies at FFA meetings, uh, dealing justly and, and, and striving for fairness in the game of life. But this is where a lot of the agricultural language comes out. He says, whoever goes to war, remember, here's, here's a military language first. Whoever goes to war, uh, does he go at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard, this is still in verse 7, and does not eat its fruit? Or who shepherds a flock and does not drink the milk from the flock? Am I saying this from a human perspective? Doesn't the law also say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is God really concerned with oxen? 
Or isn't he really saying it for us? Yes, this is written, because he who plows ought to plow in hope, and he who threshes should do so in hope of sharing the crop, being a part of partaking of the fruit of the labor there. And so in verses 7 through 10, he uses this agricultural language to kind of set a tone for fairness. You need to be able to uh, receive a fair compensation for your labor, for your hard work. The law, the Old Testament, he says, was just making common sense. You treat the ox good while it's treading out the grain. And then he draws this analogy and he applies it to his, his own calling on, on, on his life in verses 11 through 14. He says, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this authority over you, don't we have more? However, we have not used this authority. Instead, we endure everything so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform the temple services eat the food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the offerings of the altar. Now, when I read that about eating the food at the temple, I realized that we're not in the Old Testament, that our body's a temple of the Holy Spirit, that this building is not a temple. But I'll tell you what, if you leave food around here, the staff will find it. In verse 14, he says, In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. And so he kind of draws it, he applies it to his own calling and says, if you've got a calling of God that you're going to work hard at, you're going to embrace passionately, it's okay to draw an income from that and expect it to be uh, fair compensation. Obviously, there were still need, uh, still needs. In that day, there are needs today for bivocational ministers and needs for lay preachers and church planners who go out and, and, and find jobs in various areas. And, and pastors and those of you who serve in all kinds of areas need to be willing to embrace as much of what you can do as you can do for the glory of God and sometimes grow in those areas of compensation. But to the rest of us, we realize Proverbs 3.27 says, do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is within your power to do something about it. There was a, a pastor preaching one Sunday. It may have been me. But a pastor was preaching one Sunday, and he was one of these long-winded pastors. That's why I said it could have been me. And he just kept preaching, and he just kept preaching. And, and the little boy that was sitting next to his parents knew that those offering plates that were at the front of the church, like these right here, he knew that those offering plates, when they were passed, that that was the end of the service. He knew they took up the offering last that was the end of the service. So he saw the offering plates. The pastor's preaching. He keeps preaching. It's getting late. He's getting hungry. His stomach's growling. And he finally looks over at his dad and he says, if we go ahead and pay him now, will he shut up? <laughs> but our offerings, it, it's, of course it pays the staff. And, and again, I'm grateful that uh, our church loves and treats the staff and, and cares for the staff well. Paul was arguing at that point. But more than that, he was saying, listen, there's a couple of areas of, that we can embrace here, a couple of areas where we can go beyond agriculture and ministry and look at everything. And this is where, they, where it falls. First of all, it's okay to have a vision where you work really hard at what you feel called to do and strive to earn a fair living doing that. That's one reason that I don't like the idea of socialism. And I'll just be honest with you, I know that people have been discussing this because of politics lately and things like that, getting into socialism. Sometimes Christians look at Acts chapter 2 and say, wait a minute, that is kind of like socialism. 
Um, everybody has everything in common. And so that's where we get our word common, communism. Yeah. Um, everything's got every, but it's not talking about everybody getting paid the same for everything. It's talking about the church meeting one another's needs. And by the way, if the church really did that and everybody was a part of a church, we wouldn't need so many government programs anyway. I think that was God's plan. I think that is God's plan, that the church helps meet the needs of the people in the body and that everybody becomes a part of the church. And if you're not a part of a church, you miss out on many of those blessings. Because it says in scriptures, look out for those of the household of faith first. But what happens in socialism when you start saying, okay, well, we've got to be sure to bring, make everything, uh, you know, the same compensation for everything. And then you have a, a job that requires little education and somebody else who's worked hard to maybe become a doctor or something like that. And you try to redistribute the wealth in a way that everybody's kind of the same. Then all of a sudden we lack motivation to strive to do certain things. And then the government, that's why socialism always moves toward communism, because the government has to come in and say, well, this person doesn't want to be a doctor, but they'd be a really good one, so you've got to be a doctor. This person doesn't want to be a gymnast in the Olympics, but you'd be a really good one, so you have to be a gymnast. And they come in, and, and they might even try to get into the educational institutions, and let's discover what they would be good at and move them in that way, rather than allowing them to dream and, and have a vision from God and a call from God, something they get passionate about, something they want to do, and, and seek to strive to earn fair compensation for that. Now, while I say that, that's got to be balanced. That's got to be balanced by what he's talking about here with fairness. If you are a business owner, if you are a manager, if you're someone who has influence over personnel and how they're treated, then Scripture also says treat them well. Because let me tell you why socialism becomes so attractive to so many. is because capitalism, which is part of living in a free country, has become crony or greedy capitalism in so many ways that it's not going to last. See, Paul told Philemon, interesting story. Some of you know the story of Philemon and Onesimus. Onesimus was a runaway slave. He ends up in the same jail with the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul leads him to faith in Christ. And he becomes a big blessing to Paul. And Paul says, you know what? Uh, based on the laws of land, you need to go back home. But he says, I'm going to send you home with a letter. And he writes a letter to Philemon. And he says, Philemon, don't treat Onesimus like a slave any longer. Treat him like a brother. Treat him fair. Treat him right. You be a blessing to him. And I promise you, he'll be a blessing to you. And, and so part of the reason that, we, that the pendulum swings so far one way or the other is because we haven't learned to treat people fair. If you're a business owner, if you're a manager, then you treat people better than, than most would even say they deserve to be treated. And do that out of the freedom of your own consciousness so they can serve out of the freedom of theirs. And finally, is my fourth and closing principle here. We should safeguard our focus in our work. Let's not remember what we're doing, what we do, while we're doing what we do. Paul didn't forget what his calling was all about. And it was the gospel. In verse 15, he says, But I have used none of these rights. Paul never abused his rights. He says, And I have not written this to make it happen that way for me, for it would be better for me to to die than for anyone to deprive me of my boast, and that is that he was totally sold out, doing things for the right motive. In verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, I have no reason to boast because an obligation is placed on me. And woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, for if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if unwillingly, I am entrusted with the stewardship. Then, he says, what then is my reward? To preach the gospel and to offer it free of charge and not make full use of my authority in the gospel. Paul says, I'm going to lead, I'm not going to push, I'm not going to make demands, 
but I'm going to do what God's called me to do, and I'm going to trust God for the results. And that's going to open doors for the gospel so that more people might come to faith in Christ. And you're sitting there thinking, that's great for pastors, and that's great for missionaries, and that's great for evangelists, and that's great for student ministers and family ministers and worship leaders, but I'm not involved in a church vocation. The same principle applies. Ever since God saved you, he put a call on your life, and that call involved making Jesus known, glorifying God and getting the gospel out. In Romans 1.16, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and the salvation for all who will believe. What is the gospel? It's that he would say in chapter 15 of this letter that we're reading here, that the gospel that he had delivered was that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried, that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And when people come to faith in Christ through the message of the gospel, then it changes them, it redeems them, and puts them on that same redeemed path that you're on. And so Paul's saying, my mission is bigger than me. My mission is even bigger than this calling. And it allows me to do what I'm passionate about. So whether you are a farmer, a teacher, whether you're involved in vocational ministry, or serving on a ministry team in a church as a volunteer, involved in missions, working in a factory, you are there for the sake of the gospel. You're there in your school, you're there in your workplace, you're there in your home, you're there in your community to make much of Jesus, to make him known, and to glorify him, to enjoy him, and share him with others. It's about being your best, focusing on your work, being your best that you might gain opportunity to share the gospel, whether it's Low pay or high pay. Strive for fairness, but be there for the gospel. Think of verses like Philippians 4.19 to keep you going. Listen, I already know if you're a school teacher, you're underpaid, right? <laughs> Overworked, underpaid, right? Think of passages like Philippians 4.19. My God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory when you begin to see it as a calling on your life. Matthew 6.33, seeking you first the kingdom of God. Begin to pray. Pray prayers like this. Every one of us can pray, God, place me where I can glorify you with my passions, my gifts, my talents, and my calling. Listen, young people, take Jesus by the hand, walk with him, pray that prayer. God, place me where I can glorify you with my passions, my gifts, my talents, and my calling. And you watch what God does. God, place me where I can impact people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, that creed that I started quoting a moment ago concludes with words like this. I can exert an influence in my home and community which will stand solid for my part in that inspiring task. And the most inspiring task I know is the Great Commission to make Jesus known. And every one of us, whether we work on staff at a church or we serve on an international mission field or we work in a factory or in a school or at a sheriff's office, wherever we find ourselves, we can say, I'm, I've got a task. I want to make much of Jesus where I am. And if we'll understand these principles and we'll embrace that work ethic, we'll have something to wake up for every morning. And it won't be, I've got to go to that place again. I've got to put up with these personalities again. They're your mission field. Don't be surprised when lost people act like lost people. That's your mission field. Go there with a song on your lips, with a prayer in your mouth, giving God praise and let him do through you what only he can do. Would you bow your heads with me?